friends, welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. I know I don't sound like John, but sort of? No, not really at all. I'm Sam Eldridge, and it's the week of July 24th, picking up part two of a conversation on our relationship with time with Alan Arnold today. Last week, we began with just examining it. This week, we are going to be diving into a handful, five or six different ways that you could think about changing that relationship. Today, I'd like you to slow down and begin by paying attention to your breathing. I'm not going to guide you beyond that, but pay attention. How are you exhaling? How long are you holding? How long are you inhaling? Is it fast? Is it slow? As we begin this podcast and look to be rooted in the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you to exhale your freneticism. Inhale peace. Exhale stress in your to-do lists. Inhale assurance. Exhale your to-do list, your grief for a moment. Inhale that you are enough, that you have access. And for a moment, let's give it all over to Jesus. Alan, I'm excited to be back in here for part two today as we talk about time once again, our relationship with it. And I appreciated something that you kicked off last week with of trying to see time the way that God may see time, which feels a little paradoxical and that he is outside of time. And yet also you mentioned he designed time. And I've thought both in the ways that God will design the world to run in seasons, and how needed that is, and also how at the same time you can be detached and not ruled by them. It's this both and piece that feels really contradictory and somewhat a little bit like um, Chesterton's orthodoxy, where he talks mm-hmm. about that the faith is all about paradoxes. And this would be maybe a seeming one of them. I spent some time in Santa Barbara where it's like a terrarium. It's the same temperature all year long there in California. And people get weird. They they do. I got weird. It was like 72 and sunny all the time. I needed seasons. Mm -hmm. And I am totally affected by the seasons. I get seasonal affected disorder when it's rainy and cold and cloudy and I get depressed. And it's back to that. I also need to exist outside of the seasons. I need I need that rhythm. Yes. And I was struck by that as we're beginning again today with some tools that there are some seeming paradoxes to the ways we need to live and be present. And I'm excited to be handing folks some tools today. Me too. And yeah, I think that beginning step of God, show me how you view time because he created us in time to live in time. And, you know, there's the the passage in Ecclesiastes where it talks about that there's a time for everything, a time to live, a time to grieve, a time to celebrate. And and so God clearly wants us to understand time in a way that has rhythms. Like you said, Sam, seasons. And, and while Ecclesiastes has, you know, in chapter three, that, that passage, we go further back to the original intent because by Ecclesiastes, there was already this sense of despair of of having left Eden in the garden and and things have taken this turn 
where people were exhausted and trying to find meaning and and the book of ecclesiastes can can be a bit of a downer you know it's not the overall. most like yeah uplifting book right but yeah but if we go from ecclesiastes all the way back into genesis and into eden well in the garden with adam and eve there never seemed to be a scarcity of time we don't see have any hint of adam and eve feeling late or behind or um scarcity we see instead them walking with god in the cool of the day in the garden and there seems to be a spaciousness and a lavishness of not just you know the of not just the vegetation and and of the beauty around them in nature but also an abundance and a beauty of just time there's a lavishness of time and so mm. how do we go back to the original way we were supposed to interact with God and others in what I think was a spaciousness of time. And, and that gets me to kind of the, I would say the first point is let our assumptions go of how time works, how little there is, how, how there's too much, too little, um, any of those views and just go, God, give me your vantage point of time because if we look at Jesus in scripture, he never seemed to be in a hurry. Mm. And yet, you know, look at all that he was able to do in just the the three years of his earthly ministry. And there's this passage at the very end of John, which, which I love, where in John 21, 25, it says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Mm. So as much as we know about what Jesus did, his interactions, his relationships with, with people, like the world couldn't hold all the books that were written of things we didn't know, haven't mm. been told yet, that hopefully in the coming kingdom we'll get to discover. So Jesus did a lot, accomplished more than any other human, and yet, he never seemed to be in a hurry. He always had time for those around him and always seemed to be at peace in a situation that would create chaos for others. Mm -hmm. And so that interpretation, Sam, I think is our, our starting point is not that we have to figure it out how God sees time, but just to ask him, God, give me your interpretation of time and a good friend of mine um, who's in the kingdom now, John Moorhead, one time when we were having a conversation and I was telling him how overwhelmed I was and just couldn't get it all done, he just looked at me and and he wasn't trying to, to give me a quote that I hung on to for the rest of my life, but he did with his answer. And he said, Alan, hurry is an agreement with a lie that God expects more of us than we can do in a day. And he just kind of said it matter-of-factly and let it sit. And Sam, that was such a revealing, exposing moment for me because I thought, no, like hurry, hurry isn't an agreement or a way that I've just come to see my life. Like hurry is the only possible way I can survive mm. because there's not enough time. But but if it's true what he's saying. Hurry is an agreement with a lie 
that God expects more of me than I can do in a day, well, that's that's super helpful and hopeful because kind of getting to the second thing I would say quickly is that if our if our relationship with time is based on a lie, well, then we can change it. Mm. And we don't have to hurry through things from a scarcity mindset or from an orphan mindset. We can actually start to see an abundance in our day and how we have just enough time to do all we need to do that God desires for us to do that day. Mm-hmm. And so I guess to me, those I would offer the first two steps is God, how do you see time? Give me your interpretation. And then once I have that, how can I break the agreements that I've made about how time works and how there's too little or too much of it? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, It does seem to be striking a chord with that paradoxical type truth piece again of like living in eternity, but also rooted in seasons. Jesus is never in a hurry, and yet he also gets things done. There's this, I have, wait, if it's actually an agreement and a lie, then I can change it. But it felt like there was this tenable truth like gravity, like it just is a thing. I love the nature of that. Yeah, I think for me, just bouncing off of some of the conversation from last week, I'm really motivated by examining beyond the symptoms. So if, you know, if you are anxious or grieving or, or if you are feeling like there's not enough or there's too much like that all to me is that symptom that I want you to work backwards from and be curious about it. Like be curious if that's actually, is that actually true? That's one of the tools that we ask people. Um, is that, is that true hundred percent of the time that you're actually just locked into this trajectory, this narrative, like it, that's just what's going to happen. And if it's not, that might actually be very refreshing. I, I would argue that most of us have more blind spots than we're aware of. And so if you're operating just by yourself with that assumption and you're not being curious or you don't have others to use as a soundboard to go, do what's your experience of me like? Mm. Am I present? Am I am I people pleasing? Am I am I anxious? Am I am I just grieving, carrying the loss of the past? And that can be very helpful and reorienting. And again, be this doorway into where I'd like you to go. I've been doing a lot of work with a, a project I'm starting called Noble Workshops that is centered around trying to work through our stories. And at some of the coaching you mentioned and some of these events and retreats that we're building, um, we'd love for you guys to come check it out. The So how, just quickly, how can people check it out? Oh, if they want to? yeah, nobleworkshops.com. Um, you can come over to that and working on a podcast being released in the future, but this, this idea of these conversations around heart and orientation and examining the water that we're swimming in so that we might actually be the kind of present wholehearted people that we need the world to be full of and that we'd like to be ourselves. Like that's what noble workshops is all about. And one of the tasks I have people do in that workshop is this idea of if you could write yourself a letter to the past or receive one from the past, or write yourself a letter from the future, receive one from the future. What what would actually be another one of those tools? So I'll be more specific. And one would be the, like we were talking about last week with your childhood. Imagine you could sit across the table from them. First of all, how would you feel about that? How would, how do you feel about this younger you? And they're, the ways they're learning the world, the ways they're learning attachment, the ways they're learning time. 
And if you could actually give them the permission to speak, what letter do you think they would write you? Or would they want you to understand about themselves, about their questions, their fears, their longings? And actually, could you get back in touch with that younger place for the sake of connection and healing? And then it works the opposite way too. I do this with um, married couples, but it works well as an individual. What is the letter that you would love to be able to write yourself from the future or your spouse? And if so, if you're in a, a couple, this would be a free, like do this and read it to each other. So what's the letter I would love to receive from Susie in 10, 20 years? What would she say of me and of our lives that I long for? And that will actually, both of these exercises, the future one, they, they get access to these places in us of desire and deep longings and, and the places that really matter that actually our day-to-day interactions are built to keep us from. I'm moving fast. I'm, I'm scrolling on my phone. I'm getting home and doing these dishes and getting the kids in bed and reading my book to keep myself from going into those waters. Like, here's a couple of exercises that will force you to face the gravity of what younger you was living in and one that we long to be true of the future. And if we can name those pieces, you actually have these constellations now to navigate by the internal waters of your heart. That's so helpful. And it, and it reveals too, that we're not, we're not stuck permanently in the way we've been doing things. Like, like it's hopeful to me what you just said, because if we do those exercises and we'll really wholeheartedly go into it, well, change is possible. Like we, the person we want to be at the end of our life, we can start becoming today. Right. Yeah. And I'm so motivated by that. Like you live in the dirt. I live in the dirt. We live in just like the daily rhythms. But when we can gain that little bit of perspective, like give me an inch off of the wrestling mat or take me up into the airplane and give me that 30,000 foot view of, oh, what I actually long for my my spouse to save me or for me to save me is this man who's X, Y, and Z for me would be, I, I just feel spacious that like Sam laughs a lot and that he feels really grounded in the moment that he holds space for others really, really well. And he loved his family well, that he was there for them more than he wasn't there. I'd begin to actually name what are my genuine back in the dirt goals that up till then, like it's too scary, too vulnerable, too painful, whatever it may be. It's too much of something yeah, for us yeah. to name. But if you can have the courage to write that and write it honestly, I think you actually could reorient your life in a way that you'd live it the way you wanted to. You'd live it That's grounded huge. and connected. Yeah. And obviously my hope is that you wouldn't write the letter of, you know, I am Solomon from the... Uh, Old Testament and I'm just living it up. It's like, now go back and read Ecclesiastes. Like if your li- if your letter is a little bit off the rails, then, you know, drop me a line and we can do some work. But my, my, yeah. my assumption is, and most of the people that do this, the letters are profoundly grounding and hopeful and beautiful. They're not, they're not superfluous. They're not superficial. They are, they are orienting. I think that's massive. And I hope people will do that. Um, another thing, Sam, I think is helpful for, it's been helpful for me. And I think it will be for listeners is try to create a culture of spaciousness in your home life. Mm. And everybody listening is at a different stage. So some people 
you know, are, are newlyweds and some have never been married and some are empty nesters and some have young kids and some, you know, all across the board, I know. But a culture of spaciousness can happen at any one of those stages where for me right now, my youngest is uh, just graduated high school. And so we're about to be empty nesters. But what we've tried to put into practice the last several years and, and right now actively is like right before the podcast, my one of my sons called me and he said, hey, dad, do you have a minute? And my answer is always 100 percent, whether it's at midnight and they're they're living in another state or whether it's they just have a question and they're at home. The answer is always, yeah, I have all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, what's up? And I always want them to see me that way. When I call my dad, I, he has all the time in the world for me. I don't have to talk fast. I don't have to call him back. I don't get the answering, you know, his answering message. I get him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, that's part of it. But another part of it is we don't overbook our family life. And this was even happening when they were in high school. It's you don't, you know, so many parents want to keep their kids busy all the time. And so it's, you know, there's sports lessons and there's summer camp and there's um, visits and trips and vacations and activities and projects. And, you know, some of that obviously is really good and and um, call something out in our children but part of it is, I think, this feeling that we have to keep them busy so either they don't get in trouble or so um, they're not bored. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of the, the most creative minds will say we have a lack of creativity now in young adults because part of what leads to incredibly creative moments is boredom. And if we don't allow our kids to be bored at times because of constant activity and stimulation, well, they never have the ideas or the imagination development of somebody that's allowed to be bored here mm-hmm. and there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I I think of the idiom we will throw around of idle hands are the devil's workshop, which I I'm not my brother, so I don't know the roots of that and the epistemology, but that seems to fuel a lot of the couples I know that the parents that they do, they just keep their kids busy because they're afraid that if there's space, they're going to like become drug addicts. There's probably wisdom to not just letting your kids lie around all the time. And yet your piece of creativity, I think of the expression of the special forces, one of them anyway, which is that Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Why is it? I once again, paradoxically, this would be another element that I would maybe just echo the thing you were saying, Alan, of the spaciousness. You actually end up accomplishing more, having that creativity, having even that productivity, creativity and productivity. I hope I said the two different words. Um, When you have given yourself some space, why is it that, the people who actually Sabbath have a much more efficient work week. Why is it that people who begin with contemplative, meditative, or prayer, their Bible time in the morning end up having 
a more energized day than the person who gets up, rolls out, gets the cup of coffee, does the artificial sweeteners and sugars and pounds out the door and just feels fried. There is this paradox of you actually need to carve these spaces out and fight for them. And I'm terrible at it. Like I'll, I'll admit it. I'm definitely the one to go, okay, I would really love to sit outside right now with a cup of coffee, but enter in all of the agreements. Right. And that would be the piece too. Like you, you do need to address those pieces. You do need to address those core beliefs. As a guy, I really, really, really respect as a counselor and a therapist in town. And he's living out his family story of basically becoming the dad of his house when he was eight. And so he works so hard and it's taking a toll on his body. It's taking a toll on his family. And Alan, after 20 years of boot camps, I think the phrase I heard the most was this one. Out of all of the wounds, out of all of the the abuse and the trauma and the stories, this phrase over and over and over again, more than any other, my dad gave us everything but him. Yeah. That story was the most common in my experience, which is the, the dad or the mom who just goes, I need to generate and then the family loses the person who climbs into the furnace to fuel the machine and their family missed the Boy, very thing they needed most of all. The root of so many things is the absence of feeling seen and the absence of feeling seen is presence mm-hmm. and the lack of presence and the time component in that of mm-hmm. I don't have time because something else is a better use of time. Right. And, and, you know, Sam, like, um, financial advisors will often say something to the effect of, I can tell what your priorities are in life. If you just let me see your checkbook, Hmm. like, like I don't have to, you know, ask your counselor. I don't have to spend hours with you. Just show me your checkbook and it'll become pretty apparent really quick what your priorities are. Well, I think we can say a similar thing when it comes to time about our calendars and schedules. Mm -hmm. Like, show me your calendar for a week and the rhythm of your family life and how spacious or how rushed it is. And it's pretty telling on what you believe about time and Mm -hmm. and what you value most. And I, I, I just think most people feel like there's very little margin Yes. Oh, totally. Oh, my mind is going down so many rabbit trails, Alan. And I know we don't have a ton of literal time left for the episode. So there you go, Sam, that you're pegging your own thing again. Don't make that agreement. Fascinating piece of research on kids and sleep that for every 15 minutes of sleep that kids lose in grade school and high school, they decrease a letter grade. Hmm. So here is another piece of the, I need to spend this time. I need this time. I don't have time to sleep. I need to stay up. I got to be with my friends. I got to be online. I got to play video games. I got to I gotta squeeze in that early morning soccer practice. I don't have the time. Well, guess what? Every 15 minutes you lose impacts you a letter grade as a kid. But you're saying like a monster energy drink can't make up for that 15 you know, minutes. You, yeah, it'll prop you up and make you that husk of a being. Right. I think of like the foundation of physical wellness is movement, nutrition, and sleep. So for me, like there's this paradoxical, are you actually taking the time to go for that 
walk, that run? Are you actually making sure you get to bed at a decent time? Are you carving out your schedule where you're not staying up super late and getting up super early? You're becoming the David Goggins of, <laughs> I get four hours of sleep and I got to go crush the world. Look at the fruit of the thing. That's a litmus test that Jesus gave us that we use all the time on here. Like, what is the fruit of that behavior? Yeah. Like, you are running yourself into the ground. So a few weeks ago, you were telling me in passing just the the importance of sleep and how, you know, a lot of counseling sessions, like for for trying to help somebody be more well, could begin with getting a good night's sleep. Yeah, absolutely. The foundation of you you have to acknowledge we'll ground this in, in the podcast of like, you are a body and a mind and a spirit. Like you are at least those three dimensions. And so if you think that your interaction with time is limited to one of those, I mean, there's a whole rabbit trail we could have chased yeah. and just go, how does time affect your spirit that feels like you are moving through spaces, not by the clock? How about your mind where you are thinking about the past, thinking about the future, not living in the present? Well, guess what? Your body, if you are not sleeping, that's the number one indicator that your mental health is going to go down. How about this? Exercise and movement is 50% more effective than counseling and drugs. And so- I've, 50%. 50% more effective. So I've had clients cancel on me because they want to go for a bike ride. And I'm like, you are depressed. Every time you want to go for a bike ride, you cancel on me because that's going to be better than us sitting and talking, though that is an effective piece. And I want that in your life as well. I'd go, it may feel inefficient for you to use your time this way. Guess what? You have to, if you want to be grounded and whole and well, like you, you do, you need to go for that walk with your wife and hold hands instead of doing your budget. Because once again, paradoxically, that will actually be a better use of time and make you more in the moment and more healthy when you come back from that walk. Well, a side note, I can't find anywhere in the scriptures where we are told that efficiency is the goal. Like any story from the Old Testament, Oof. God never seems to be focused on that person's efficiency. It's about that person's transformation. And so I mean, it's it's a value that so many cultures hold up is to be efficient. That the one who gets the most done wins. The the power to do more in less time, and so we're you know we're partially present to everything and fully absent to everything at the same time because we can't be in six places and do that well. Mm. For those who and I used to be this guy, so. I, I'm speaking from experience, but if you're holding efficiency as a reason that you don't have much time, I would challenge you in a loving way, find places in scripture where God values efficiency over relationship mm -hmm. or over intimacy with him. If efficiency is kind of the, the, the thing in front of you that's causing you to go, but I don't have enough time because it's not efficient well, that's okay. Let go of efficiency. Yeah. I've been spending some time with the Orthodox Christians and they're very disruptive for a lot of reasons. But one of the first that I encountered was <laughs> repeating this phrase of God does not seem to be in a hurry. And I was like, you have not been to a seeker sensitive marketing <laughs> meeting where hurry is everything. Like what God does not seem to be in a hurry is okay with it taking time. And it does... Again, to but the, he has to be in a hurry because every uh, mm, church service mm, cool ends baby. in one hour boom, on boom, the boom, dot. Boom. So that 
he can't dally around, man. I better save your neighbor or they won't be saved because the end is tomorrow. I mean, like panic, panic, go, move, move. Like scarcity. it's all up to you. You're the savior. Like well, all the scarcity, just yeah. domino effect. There's this um, phrase, I may have mentioned it before in this podcast, but for those of you that are feeling that like time pressure or that like it's too late for me, because I, I do, I meet with a lot of people who are later on in life and there's this experience of, you don't understand, I have decades behind me to indicate that everything is too late. And I would argue a counterpoint to that. One is as a Christian, you believe that you are an eternal being and that there is no wasted time, that nothing is actually lost. So if you can slow down for a moment, mm. go, you are an eternal being. Mm. And there's a phrase that I love that goes like this. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Love that. Love it is that. not too late. Well, hey, one last thing I'll, I'll toss out to people uh, as a way to redeem your view of time because that's what we're really after here is what is your relationship with time? That was part one, but part two is how do you redeem time and your relationship with it? And the last one I'd put on the table might be the most sensitive to people, um, but it would be um, lose your screen addiction Mm. because we spend way too much time on our screens and it can be justified a thousand different ways. But the reality is we are constantly looking at the screen in our hands, our phone. We're constantly engaged with everything from binging on Netflix to um, hours and hours and hours in virtual reality or, or gaming. And all of that takes time that we could be doing something else that involves the real world, that involves the person in front of us. Like it always amazes me at restaurants where no matter who somebody is with, they're on their phone texting somebody else, which would give me the assumption that other person they're texting is more important than the person with them. But then when they're with the person they're texting, they're texting the other other person. It's insane. And so we have to realize it's okay to unplug. It's okay to not have the phone in the same room as us at night when we go to bed or at a restaurant or when we're outside walking around the neighborhood. Like, I think that is a way, if time feels scarce, well, first don't make that agreement, but but one way to redeem and, and reclaim a lot of your time is simply spend less time on Facebook, less time on Instagram, less time on TikTok, less time on Netflix, less time just mindlessly scrolling through newsfeed. Like there's a better use of time. And so how do you minimize, like look look at a weekly report on your phone of how many hours you're on your phone and see if you can start cutting that in half and then cut that in half and then eventually end up using a phone as a phone like when you need to call somebody, not as a distraction device. Mm. So I think that's one component. It's not the only thing. It's not maybe the main thing, but it is something that we resist yeah, um, and that we can redeem. Yeah. I, you know, in one way, I would like to say that like there may be a day when you actually do need to veg out, but it's not every single day. I guaranteed. And there was a counselor I sat with for myself who said, all of our addictions reveal that there's something that we can't face or don't want to. 
And I would encourage you to ask that question. If Alan's suggestion just now is met with, oh, heck no, I would be curious of like, oh, like what are you using that to run from? Because you are, you are running from something with it. Yeah. And, and we're not pointing fingers. We're, I mean, we're trying to do the same thing here. And, but I know in the last year, I've had an hour or two more per day to do what really matters by following this philosophy. Mm. Like by, by basically pushing my phone away and my time on it for anything, whatever it may be, I've had more time to do the things that, that renew and bring life to me. So it is, it is something that I would encourage you to try and just see where it leads. Yeah. It's so funny. My wife has this expression where she says, none of us in our, on our deathbed are going to say, gosh, I wish I had spent more time scrolling. (laughs) Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Alan, thanks for having me on for this conversation about time. And I know we've stirred some stuff up for people and hopefully you're finding some of these tools to be incredibly helpful and orienting and practical to some of them just being really introspective and and provocative. Thanks for having me on. Oh, Sam, it's been awesome. And I'm going to ask before we wrap up, tell us one more time how people can connect with you through Noble. Yep. So Noble Workshops is the project I'm working on now and hoping to have a podcast for that soon. But if you want to go to nobleworkshops.com, you can check out the website, see more about what I'm doing over there with events and intensives and things like that. So thanks for asking and hope you come check us out. Yeah. Yeah. You guys check that out. And for all the things we've stirred up here that feel unfinished or disruptive, um, right, we can only go through so much in a podcast or two we know, but bring those questions to God. See the see the things that feel unknown or unfinished or just like you're not sure what to do with as an invitation to spend more time with God, the creator of time on the topic of how to redeem time.